Today's scripture reading is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the book of Jonah, and we've been talking about how Jonah teaches us what it means to embrace the city uh, with the gospel. And uh, we learn how to do that by understanding or coming to grips with the complexities of sin and grace in a world that really shares no uh, common value uh, or lifestyle. Uh, Everyone's got different values and lifestyles, uh, particularly in the city, and um, because we live in a fragmented city. Uh, a fragmented culture. And just to, go into, just to give you a little bit of a summary of what's going on in this text, Jonah, he's a prophet. He's called by God to preach to the Assyrian capital at Nineveh. They're the most powerful empire in the world to date. And instead of obeying God, the text says in chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee. And he boards this ship. And whereas Nineveh is directly east of Jonah, he goes directly west to Tarshish. Right? And so it, it give you a sense of uh, what's going on here. Nineveh is modern-day Iraq. Tarshish is somewhere near modern-day Spain. So he's going dif- directly west. And on the ship, there's a storm. And Jonah's gone down uh, to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the far corner of the ship, and he's laid down. He's farthest away from God as possible and from his will. And then this big storm rages. And uh, the sailors on the ship, uh, they don't believe in God. They're crying out to their own gods. And, and Jonah, as a lot is cast on Jonah, and they realize it's because of him that they're in this storm, Jonah says, throw me overboard, and, and you'll calm the waters. They throw him overboard, and this fish swallows up Jonah. He's down into the depths of the sea, and he prays this magnificent prayer to God. And the fish then comes up, vomits him up onto dry land. God calls him to preach to Nineveh. He goes there and he preaches, and the people start to turn. And I love this book. I love Jonah because Jonah is suffering, and Jonah is so angry, and he's suffering, and he's suffering for a noble cause. He's suffering. He wants to protect his people, and he's a religious man. He's got all the right reasons to be angry. 
And he's the only prophet, mind you, that's been called to preach not to his own people, but to somewhere else. And he's there, and he's at odds with God, and he's angry with God, and he's arguing with God. And one of the things we learn here, right off the bat in this text, teaches us that God is not something that we've created to satisfy our needs. A God we've created would never be able to argue with us, would never be able to challenge us, would never be able to reason with us, would never be able to do what he did with Jonah because that kind of God would never change us. That kind of God would never be able to save us. And Jonah's angry. And at the same time, you don't see God pounding on him. You don't see God pounding on him on one hand. You don't see him pitying him on the other, but he's speaking to him. It's an amazing thing. He's speaking to Jonah. He's counseling Jonah. He meets him in his suffering. He meets him at the peak of his anger. He says, I'm angry enough to die, he says. But he's counseling Jonah. So gentle. Jonah says, you know, my life is falling apart. Everything's come undone. And God is so gentle. And he calls him back. And there are going to be three things that we learn from this. Three very quick things. Very, very quick things. The diagnosis of anger. The uh, root cause of our anger. And then the healing of our anger. The diagnosis, the root cause, and the healing of our anger. First, the diagnosis. And we see this in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, it says. He was greatly displeased, and he became angry. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he preaches perhaps the harshest or the worst sermon, um, a very short only a few words in Hebrew. He goes a day into Nineveh and he sees all the wickedness. And he knows why he, dis- he just so much just does, dislikes uh, the Assyrians. And he says, 40 days and this city will be overturned. In other words, what he's saying is, I see the wickedness, I see the evil, I see the cruelty, I see the violence. Stop doing this. Stop doing this or it will all be over because one, it's one day someone's going to come and it's going to wipe out all the wickedness and evil. Stop it right now. And they do. They stop it. The entire city comes and commits to end the violence and end the wickedness. If you had a mayor of that town, and this is something that mayors would only dream of having. And if you ended the story right there, that God had relented from his anger, and if it ended with just that passage, it would have been an amazing story And yet it continues on. Now you're seeing the aftermath. Jonah's response. Jonah now departs. He goes east of the city. And he stands out there and he's waiting to see what's going to happen. And he's just so angry. He's just so upset because God is gracious, he says. You know, he says, uh, you know, verse 1, he's exceedingly angry. He was angry. And he says, oh, Lord, is this not? What I said when I was yet in my country, this is why I, w- I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew you would do this. And he's so angry. He says he's exceedingly angry. In the Hebrew, God has done an evil to me. That's what he's saying. This has been an evil done to me. You are evil for doing this to me. You are tormenting me in this way. Where's the justice? He says, I knew it. He's quoting from a passage in in Exodus. He says, I knew, 
I knew that you would be this way. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew you'd be abounding in love. I knew you'd be gracious and compassionate. And actually, in the passage in Exodus, it continues on to say, but I will not let the wicked go unpunished. He doesn't quote that because he's reconciling it. He says, God is gracious, but he's, he's going to punish wickedness? I don't see it. I can't reconcile it. I don't understand it. Where's the justice? Where's the justice with all, in all this evil? I see the grace. I see your compassion. Where's the justice? You're supposed to punish Nineveh. That would make you all just because you are all just. And you're supposed to be gracious and compassionate. That would make you all loving. How can you be both at the same time? Jonah is struggling with that. He's struggling with that. He says, someone has to pay. And he's conflicted and he's confused. He says, you know, you told me to preach against them and I did. And now this What's going on? The diagnosis of anger is this. It's often deeply rooted in our understanding of God's love and deeply rooted in our understanding of God's justice. The reconciling of that love and justice. And if you get caught up in one side or the other, what happens is your flawed understanding of one or the other or both, it starts to corrode you. It becomes deeply rooted. That's at the root of all envy, It's at the root of all jealousy, all of our grumbling, all of our complaining, all of our comparing ourselves with the next person, why they live and how they live our lives. It's at the root of all of that. That's the diagnosis. Because if you disagree with the way one person is living, where's the justice? If you disagree with the way you're being treated, you have done an evil to me. Haven't, Jonah's a religious man. Haven't I obeyed you? Haven't I done what you've asked me to do? You owe me. Jonah was exceedingly angry. It shows up all the time when we question the love or the justice of God. There's this deep undercurrent of self-righteousness and anger in all of us. That's what this passage is saying. In all of us, there's a deep undercurrent of self-righteousness and anger. And it shows up whenever we say, you know, I would never do it that way. I disagree. I would never live that way. I would never make decisions that way. I would never be like you. And that's what's killing him. That's what's killing Jonah. It says he's east. The text says he's east. He's standing out there and he's looking and waiting to see what God's going to do. You know, in in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they were driven east of Eden. There's this distance from God. And Jonah, who was once very, very, very distant from God, is brought close to God. He goes out to preach, and now he's angry. The anger is just boiling up. It comes back, and now he's distant again. He's east, and he's watching, and he's waiting, and he's judging, and he's waiting. And this anger is corroding his heart, this religious man. And what it's saying is our anger. If Jonah, a man of God, a prophet sent by God to preach the word of God, can be angry, and that anger can corrode him, surely our anger can corrode any one of us. That's what this text is saying. A flawed application of God's love and justice is the diagnosis of all spiritual downfalls. If you misunderstand God's love, misunderstand his justice, that is the, diagno- that is the, the root of all spiritual downfalls. Now, now oh, it's the reason why we don't have a heart for people around us, why we resent people, why we become bitter. It's the reason why we are jealous, why we avoid people, why we distance ourselves from one another. Deep inside... Deep inside, we're all still competing with one another for God's love because we think it's so limited and it's only for us. That's what we think. Jonah 
His heart has gone bad. It's suffering. And he's conflicted. And remember, when he was in the fish, he's crying out, I'll never do it again. You are the only one that saves. But in Nineveh, it all comes back. All the anger comes back. What's the root cause? When the anger comes back, what's the root cause? We have to examine ourselves deeply. What's at the root? What's at the root of the blaming? What's at the root of the self-righteousness? What's at the root of the judgment? And here it is. Something has inevitably become more important to us than God. And we've been kept from it. It's been withheld from us. And when those things that have become more important than God has been withheld from us or has been kept from us, we become angry. And that anger starts to corrode us. It can be any one moment or any one circumstance or it can be something that's far-reaching over the course of time, lasting decades. But when, we're with, when it's withheld from us, our heart goes bad. What's at the root of Jonah's anger? Verse 3. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? He, mainly God just asks questions. He's counseling him. Do you do well to be angry? What's at the root of Jonah's unhappiness, his anger? He says, take away my life. It's better for me to, to die than to live. In chapter 2, he's praising God. By chapter 4, he wants to die. He's so angry at God, he wants to die. How do you explain the conflicted heart? How do you explain that? Jonah is so dissatisfied with the situation. You know, he's so unhappy with this place right now that God's presence is not, knowing that God is near him is not helping him. You ever do that? You're really angry and, you know, your friend who wants to counsel you says, you know, but God is present in the situation. That makes you more angry. He's just so angry. He knows. He's talking to God. He's so angry. He says, I knew you'd be forgiving. I knew you'd spare them. I knew you'd be gracious to them. I knew you'd be compassionate to them. But not them. Not them. How do we know that Jonah is that angry? He says, take away my life. Whenever somebody says, you know, I'd rather die than live, you know what they're saying? That thing that has meant life to me, that thing that is all the world to me, That thing that is meaningful to me, that has given my life worth, is now gone. I might as well die because it's gone. That thing that I invested my life in is gone. I'd rather die. Take my life away. I'd rather just go. My life has no more meaning, no more worth. Jonah's looking. Look at this. Jonah is looking at the only source of worth. And he's saying, I have no more worth. He's looking at the only source of meaning in his life. He's saying, I have no more meaning. He's looking at the only uh, source of mission in his life. And he says, I have no purpose. I have no mission in life. That's what he's saying. It could be, for us, it could be our relationships, the intimacy that we have with one person or many people. It could be our children. It could be our health. The moment we get sick. It could be our the success that we have or enjoy, our ministry, our ministry. It could be our looks and then you start to grow old or you start to grow bald. What happens? You get so angry. All those things that I enjoyed, 
that I worked for has been taken away from me. I'd rather die than to live. And that's at the root of our spiritual collapse. These things, for Jonah, it was the security of his people. These are noble things. He was fighting for his people. The Assyrians posed a danger to Jonah. And eventually they rout the Israelites. They continue on their wicked ways. So Jonah had a point. He had a purpose. He had a reason to be angry. But it had, had taken over, it had become greater worth than God. And when we say that something has become more important than our mission, that what God's purpose for us, God himself, then it becomes our idol. It's what we worship. There are people in the world today, there are people in this room today that say they worship God. But what they're really saying is, I will serve God as long as he meets my needs. And the way you know that is when their needs no longer are met. When their needs are no longer met, what happens? They become rebellious. We become angry. We become resentful. That's natural. In 1984, there was uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. is Amadeus. I have no musical bone in my body, but I love to appreciate people with musical talents and gifts. And Amadeus um, won eight Academy Awards. It's a story of Mozart. Um, the biography, the life of Mozart, told through the eyes of Antonio Salieri, his, his, com- his competition. And he's in an asylum now. And this man comes to interview him, to talk to him. And he's, he's crazy. He's gone mad. And Salieri says, I have murdered Mozart. That's how the movie starts. I murdered Mozart. The man says, you killed Mozart? You know, and he starts to tell this story and he, how he was first introduced to Mozart. But in the beginning of the movie... Um, he starts to, you know, he's a composer. And the man says, you know, um, you're a composer. I'd love to, you know, he says, maybe you recognize this tune. He starts to play this tune. And the, and the man says, no, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't recognize that tune. And he says, okay, well, maybe, maybe you recognize this tune. And he plays another one of his pieces. And he says, no, no, I don't, I don't quite recall that tune either. And he says, okay, well, maybe you recognize this tune. And he goes, dun, 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 dun. And the guy goes, yes, yes, that's a beautiful song. I didn't know you composed it. And the man says, I didn't. That was Mozart. And he goes on to talk about how he met Mozart. And this infantile, immature, lustful man with this amazing gift. And, you know, Salieri was a godly man. He wanted to praise God with his music. And if you see in the quote in your call to worship, you see, you know, he gave his life and he basically tries to negotiate with God and says, you know, all his life, his prayer was, make me a great composer so I can praise you. But then he meets Mozart, this anti-God of a man who's, who's so gifted and so talented. And he says he killed him over and over and over and, and basically ruined his life, led to his ruin in a way, according to the movie. He says, you, you know, he gets so upset at God and so angry at God. He says, you know, you chose this boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy. And because of that, you are unjust. You are an evil to me, he says. You are unjust, you are unfair, unkind, and I will block you, I swear it. That was, that was Salieri. It drove him mad. It drove him mad. Jonah heads out east, distant from God, and he's waiting to see what happens. There's a scorching wind that God sends. God appoints this wind, and he's scorching in the, in the heat, and he wants to die. He's angry. And then this plant, this vine sprouts up behind him and starts to grow. Now, mind you, in Nineveh, the people are repenting. And he can see the image from a distance of this vine growing out of Jonah. 
And it's similar to many other instances of plants that have grown. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, you see this tree. You know, the tree. Uh, the Hebrew word for that tree is eights. It was a tree of judgment in many ways. You know, later on you see um, the ark was made of a wood. And the wood, again, the same Hebrew word pops up, the word eights. It's the word of judgment. Later on you see Absalom in the kingdom of David. Absalom, his son, who is conspiring against his own father. They were trying to figure out who the mole was in their community. And Absalom, all of a sudden, he's riding on this horse. His hair, which was his glory, gets stuck in the branches. The word branch, that tree, the same Hebrew word. As soon as he's stuck, he's dangling by these branches. He falls to the ground. The people instantly kill him. Why? Because everybody knew throughout history of the Bible, cursed is the man who is hanging on a tree. And this plant now grows behind Jonah. And Jonah is happy about the plant, he says. It gave him shade. It gave him cool. There was judgment. He thought that was promised. And then all of a sudden, in overnight, a worm comes out and eats the plant. Eats the plant. And it says, Jonah, now he's just excruciatingly angry because he knows the judgment has been eaten. The worm had come and eaten up the judgment. And he's angry about the plant. And God says again, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, amazing response, he says what? Yes, yes, I do well to be angry. He says, angry enough to die, angry, angry in the Hebrew, the doublet. There's this emotional content. He's yelling at God. He's raising his fist at God. He says, I have every right to be angry. You are, you are, where's the justice in this place? (sighs) Wow, amazing passage. But we also know that the author of this passage has to have been Jonah. It had to, I believe it had to have been Jonah. God is calling him back, counseling Jonah, and it ends open-ended. You know, but number one, it had to have been Jonah. Why? Because number one, you would never write fiction. In this genre, in that day and age, you would never write fiction like this. Fiction was never written like this. If you read the great books of this day and age, um, there's a lot more action, and there's a lot, much heroism, more, a lot more heroism. Who's the hero in this text? There's no hero. You'd think it'd be Jonah, but Jonah is not. He's the anti-hero in this text. It had to have been Jonah. Either he wrote it himself or he told it to somebody, but all in all, we must know he must have learned. He must have learned. He's saying, look at me. Look how angry I was. Look how foolish I was. Look how bitter and entitled and prideful I was. Are you angry? Aren't you tired? In your anger, let go of your anger. Let go of your pride. Let go of those rival gods. Look how gracious and loving and patient God is. Chapter 2, Jonah gets to fish. He says, now I get it. Now I get it. Salvation is up to God. Chapter 4, he says, huh? I don't get it. (laughs) You know, salvation is of the Lord. Now he's judging people based on their works. You failed me. You failed this. You didn't do this. These people don't live this way. You made these decisions. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with your decision making. And that's the, that's the default of our hearts. That's the default of our lives. We're so distant from God. We judge ourselves. We beat up other people. We're constantly doing that. Our anger goes so corrosive. And God is asking, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Jonah needed healing. Where's our healing? Because this book is the evidence that Jonah needs rest. He needs healing. 
Where is our healing? How are we healed? Jonah is gripped by the cost. God is gracious and just. God is, God is God of mercy and justice. How do we reconcile that? That's what he struggled with. How do you reconcile that? We can reconcile that. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem. And he's looking at it and he's weeping. He doesn't look at it with justice or judgment. He's weeping. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from you. Now it's hidden from your eyes. And he's weeping. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they're going to dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls because you didn't recognize God. In other words, what he's saying is he's looking at the city and he's weeping for the city. He's weeping for the city. He's saying someday this city will be overturned. It's going to be overturned because you didn't recognize God. You didn't end your violence. You didn't end your wickedness. You didn't end your evil. But he's not looking at them with judgment. He's looking to bear judgment. And he's looking at them and he's weeping. You don't think he's angry? These people, we have rebelled against his father. We have rebelled against the king. You don't think he's angry? We have rebelled. We have betrayed against the king. But he doesn't respond with anger. Jonah grieved at the salvation of the wicked. Jesus grieved over the judgment of the wicked. Jonah came to bring judgment. Jesus came to bear judgment. He's the greater Jonah. That's what's going to melt your heart. To know that the king has come not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment for us. Jesus was arrested. Before he was arrested, though, he was praying for the very people who would betray him. He was praying for them. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's an amazing thing. What's he saying? He's reflecting on what's going to happen to him on the cross. Soon after, he would be arrested. He would be beaten and tortured and and made a mockery of. And yet, on the cross, he knows. He's reflecting at that moment of what's going to happen to him on the cross. Where the full justice, the full judgment, the full wrath that man deserved would fall on him. All of it. There is a hymn that says that he, had dr- he drank the dregs of God's wrath. You know what the dregs are? It's when you sip tea. It's the pieces, the particles that have the little bits of the tea left in it. It says that he had sucked up the dregs of God's wrath. Every last ounce. We, we are given living water. You know why? Because on the cross, he drunk up the dregs of God's wrath. All of it poured on him. He's reflecting on the cross. There, the punishment for our wickedness, what we deserve, falls on him. And on the cross, he says, I am finished. I have come undone. All the wrath that we deserve poured on Jesus. He says, I am undone. God's wrath, I am falling apart because it's been poured out on me in full. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have lost my meaning my center, my worth, what I worship. It's been taken away from me. I have been forsaken and I'm falling apart to the core. The judgment and the wrath of God 
that we deserved had fallen on Jesus. He suffered the full heat of the scorching wrath of God for our sake. He was crucified outside the city, all the while weeping for the city. Do you see that? Weeping for us. Weeping for you. Weeping for me. That's Jesus. Jonah says, I would rather die than see the wicked spared. Jesus says, I would rather die so that the wicked would be spared. And if you see that, would you let go of your anger? To know that all the wrongs that have been done has been placed on Christ. That is what takes away our need to punish other people for their wrongs. You don't punish people for their wrongdoing because you can say, you know what? The justice that I deserved had fallen on Christ. How can I then continue to punish somebody for their sins, for their wrongdoings? It begs compassion. It begs grace. On one hand, an apology is not enough. We know that an apology is not enough. Somebody has to pay. But on that cosmic level, level, Jesus paid. And he paid it in full. And his love is poured out and it's not just enough. It's overwhelming. It's abundant for our sakes. Will that, you have to take that truth and plant that deep inside because when you do, that's the healing of your anger. Many of us are angry at our parents. We're angry at our children. We're angry at our pastors. We're angry at each other. And so we distance ourselves from each other. It is an unnatural thing to be coming together for the sake of Christ. Jesus himself is counseling you. Do you do well to be angry? Let go of your anger. Let the love of Christ heal you. Let his mercy overwhelm you. And that's how you show love. You you say, I refuse to punish other people for their wrongs. I refuse to punish them and reject them for their lifestyles. You may get rejected. You may get punished. But the justice that they deserve, the justice that we deserve, has been paid for by Jesus in full. The deeper you believe that, you'll learn what it means to forgive. You'll know what it means to be healed of anger. Friends, for me, as we approach this table, for me, when you start a church, you experience a lot of things that are painful. And, uh, and we're going to experience that over the course of time. Every one of us, none of us here are free from circumstances that have either fallen on us, you know, or happened to us, or maybe perpetrated by us that circulate eras and times of violence and wickedness and despair and self-pity. But that is not of the gospel. We can let it go. We are a suffering people and a sinful people, but we are a joyful people because God has forgiven us. That is an amazing thing. And, and as we come, that's why as we come, even though the church, Don Carson says, the church is made of natural enemies. Why do we celebrate and remember Jesus through a meal? It's because what we're saying is we are brothers and sisters still. Will you commit to that as we come to the table? Allow me to pray for us as Dr. Crispin comes and breaks bread with us and for us.